Hi, Nick Petrella here. This episode is sponsored by Volkwein's Music, a full-service shop that's been meeting the musical needs of musicians for over 135 years. They offer a huge selection of instruments, accessories, music, and more. They also have an unmatched instrument repair department with some of the most experienced technicians in the business. For years, they've serviced my personal and school instruments, and their attention to detail is why I and professional musicians from around the globe trust Volkwein's to service their gear. Head over to volkweinsmusic.com to see what they can do for you. That's V-O-L-K-W-E-I-N-S music.com. Helping people discover music since 1888. Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, making art work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice. Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella. Welcome podcast listeners. My name is Andy Heiss. And I'm Nick Petrella. Joining us today are saxophonists Matt Levy and Zach Scheman, members of the award-winning Prism Quartet, one of America's foremost chamber ensembles. Prism has commissioned nearly 300 works and performed throughout the world. We'll link to their website in our show notes so you can read more about the ensemble and each musician. Zach and Matt, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. In our courses, we have a few SWOT analysis assignments to get students thinking about strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats for their current or future ventures. Are there opportunities that PRISM hasn't yet acted upon, and are there threats that concern you? Um. I would say maybe opportunities that we haven't tapped into yet might be might be additional funding sources. Um, I think there are, there are always places to look for additional funding sources that I think for us it's just a, a capacity issue. Just talking to Matt, um, Matt does a lot of our grant writing with with a team, and there's just uh, only so much work that that you can do in that area. Um, and then also the fact that we're um, balancing, as we talked about earlier full-time jobs in addition to our work with PRISM. Um, so, so it's, um, becomes at some point a capacity issue. Um, and then the, the main threat maybe for an organization like ours, it could come back to, uh, the funding sources that we talked about. Um, and if you're relying too heavily on one, uh, one funder or one source of funding, um, and if that funding were to go away at some point, um, that could threaten the organization. Yeah. I think one program in particular that is an opportunity for PRISM is our PRISM Quartet Institute, which we launched in response to the pandemic. And it's a way of sharing all the knowledge we've gained over 37 years with aspiring artists, students um, from ages you know, 10 through doctoral students. And so we've been working with 13 organizations over the last year uh, through online seminars and workshops and classes. And so the goal of this is really to kind of establish a curriculum and fine tune it 
and then we can offer it to um, aspiring artists and institutions that represent them worldwide, you know, and so we're not limited by geography, by having to be together physically. And so that, that is a potential opportunity for PRISM to, to work beyond our, you know, regular borders um, that we're working on quite a bit right now. Yeah. So it's branding and outreach. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think um, we're kind of setting the stage to launch this as a, as a worldwide institute. And um, we were fortunate to get support from the Presser Foundation <clears throat> to offer these services for free to all of these organizations, you know, and it's, this is really a response to the pandemic, you know, a way for us to continue to kind of nurture young artists. And, um, and we got another grant from the Pew Center to launch a, an evaluation of this and, and a feasibility study. Like, what works, what doesn't? Is it feasible to develop this institute in the way we imagine? And what are all the potential obstacles and, and possibilities? So we have a whole team of uh, consultants and evaluators and panels that are going to weigh in on this institute to help us uh, find a way forward. That's cool. That's interesting. I look forward to, uh, will there be a report or something in the next five years or so? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have a couple of reports from these yeah. consultants, um, probably by the fall. Oh, so okay. we'll, awesome. have, we'll have done three semesters worth of work. Oh, okay, great. And then, we'll, yeah. and then they'll do the evaluation and feasibility study. Cool. Yeah. So uh, zooming out a little bit to more of a macro view, what is the role or function of a chamber ensemble in the classical music world? Is it just a smaller version of a larger ensemble or how, what, what's sort of the role that the, the chamber ensembles play? That's a, a big question that we could probably go in a lot of different directions <laughs> answering. Um, but I could take a stab at it, I suppose. For, for Prism, I think one of our functions is as a new music, uh, new music ensemble, giving voice to contemporary composers and developing repertoire for our instrument and our medium, which is relatively young uh, compared to some other instruments and other chamber ensembles. And so f for us, uh, being a relatively small organization, being a chamber ensemble and being you know, relatively young instrument and young ensemble, it lets us kind of write the script for what we want a chamber ensemble or a saxophone quartet to be. We're making decisions about who we want to commission. So we're, we're really like kind of crafting the repertoire for, for us and for our students and for future generations. We're also making decisions about who we want to collaborate with. Um, and I think those d decisions very much define our ensemble and it in some ways defines the medium. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. Um, I do think there are so many kinds of chamber ensembles that it's really case by case. So you could make a case that some chamber groups are playing like versions of orchestral repertoire, you know, very traditional music that is the masterworks. And so there's a similarity in a way. Um, but for us, it's more about like breaking the wheel. We didn't have the luxury of coming you know, from a tradition of hundreds of years of, of music. Right. Um, and so when we started off, there really wasn't all much repertoire. It was mostly like mid 20th century French conservatory music. Um, and so we recognized that, that that wasn't really enough to sustain us or even keep our interest. Um, so it became about kind of redefining the medium. And, yeah. and I think we looked at groups that do that in their own ways, like Pronos Quartet, you know, that are sort of reimagining what's possible. And so a lot of our collaborations are with 
unlikely collaborators, you know, including groups like Music from China or So Percussion or the Parch Ensemble or lots of jazz artists, you know, um, and so, um, or an early music ensemble like Pifero. So we're, we're trying to find new contexts and new sound worlds that we can sort of define and develop repertoire for. Um, and that's, that's, I think, unique to PRISM. And every group, if it's successful, will find something that is unique to them, that identifies them, uh, not only through their, the quality of their playing, but like their programming and how that is part of their identity as well. Is that one of the reasons why you switch from Naxos to this other distributor, just because of the eclectic material and the associations you have with different types of ensembles? Uh, no, not necessarily. Um, we just okay. reached the end of a contract and we decided n- not to renew it. Um, we did renew it with Naxos Music Library, which is like a separate division of Naxos, mm-hmm. which reaches into libraries and universities and provides free access for students and faculty. Uh, you, I'm sure you guys have it at you know, KC. Um, mm-hmm. So we're still distributed in that way by Naxos of America. I'm sorry, by Naxos Music Library. But we switched to Symphonic um, just after surveying many, many distributors. And they checked all the boxes, you know. And we sort of wanted to break out of the mold a little. And, and I think the advantage has been that we have, it's a much smaller distributor compared to Naxos. So at Naxos, you work one-on-one with a label rep and hardly ever work with anyone else. So it's really like individual. Whereas with Symphonic, um, I'm working with people in various divisions of Symphonic, like someone who handles physical distribution and someone who works mostly with digital distribution and marketing. And so there's, so I'm actually developing more expertise and relationships across a much wider spectrum of representatives that I think is serving our ensemble well. And in turn, Symphonic, one of the things they really are great with is pitching our recordings to digital service providers like Spotify for for their playlists. So that's really like the the crown jewel of Spotify and Apple Music. If you can get on the playlists, then you'll exponentially increase your listeners. So Spotify has been really good about, I'm sorry, Symphonic has been really good about um, helping to promote our releases to various playlists. So our, our last recording was on playlists on Tidal, on Deezer, on Spotify. And so we're seeing the kind of, um, that, that's, a, that's been really beneficial to sharing our recordings. Yeah. And, and I mean, to your point, uh, mixing up Spotify with, um, with um, your your distributor, uh, there's so much to be done, right? There's so many outlets. There's so many, especially in the digital streaming world, right? You, it it might be really helpful to have somebody that's that's doing that for you. Because going back to your comments about capacity, there's only so much you can do. Yeah, yeah. I think um, there are lots of levels of distributors. There, are, yeah. some are like CD CD baby, where anyone can join and they don't provide the kind of services right the the tailored services yeah, the, they're not the sort they're of, not going to pitch your recordings you're sort of on right, your own yeah, yeah. they give you lots and lots of information to help you do it yourself but that's different than the distributor doing it they have more cachet and more connections you know so sort of you can kind of survey the all the various levels of distributors and you know to see what's possible but if you're just starting out there's nothing wrong with cd baby 
a sure. number of labels go through CD Baby, you know, yep. and it's perfectly fine, you know. When a member leaves the ensemble, what's the audition process to replace that musician? Is it open or do you call someone the other members know with an invitation to join the group? Maybe I'll start and then I'll turn it over to Zach since he was our most recent addition back in 2007. Uh, <laughs> but we did, we did have, uh, you know, it wasn't open. We reached out to professors and people that we respected and teachers um, across a wide number of institutions and just to get a lay of the land, like who should we consider inviting? Because we, we don't have capacity to audition 100 people. We might be able to audition 10 people, you know, and that audition could be like you're sitting in with the quartet for a concert, you know, and it's not just we're going to spend 20 minutes with you. Um, and so so we kind of develop a list and, you know, and then make invitations. But we're not we're not uh, we we're not adverse to inviting students, you know. So a number of our um, members joined us as students, you know, Zach Sheeman being a prime example. Um, it's really about their artistry, how they blend in, how they hopefully elevate the, the ensemble and our leaders within their own right and have a synergy with the group, you know. So, Zach, you want to talk about your, your experience? Sure. And I can also back up just to um, kind of talk through the current membership. So Matt is our um, last remaining founding member. Uh, he founded the group as a student um, at the University of Michigan in 1984. And then there were a number of member changes probably early on. Um, and the next uh, current member who, who joined was in 1994. Tamer Sullivan joined in 1994, coming right out of a master's degree program. Um, so he was about the same age I was when I uh, joined the group. Um, and then Tim McAllister joined the group, Matt, in 2000, 2001. Um, he started subbing first, I think, for a season and then became a full-time member. And then I joined in 2007. I was coming out of actually my undergraduate degree. Um, I did a double major at University of Michigan, so I took five years, um, but I was in my, my fifth year. Um, and I got an invitation to first send uh, recordings and my resume. And I sent a recording of my undergraduate quartet. Uh, I was the alto saxophonist in my undergraduate quartet, and we had... Um, Fortunately, I made a number of recordings. Um, we competed in, in Fishoff and other, other chamber music competitions, and we did a recital shortly before we went off to the competition and, um, and recorded it. And so fortunately, I had those recordings, um, and I also sent a couple solo recordings. Um, and then they invited me for a live audition in New York City. Um, and it was, um, at, at that point, one of the... Uh, First times that I had, had been to, to New York, uh, so it's kind of an exciting trip for me. Um, sent me the music about nine or ten days in advance, and um, so I spent my spring break of um, my senior year um, practicing <laughs> from the time I woke up to the time I went to, to bed and doing score study and um, making notes and um, just um, trying to be as, as well prepared for that audition as I, as I could be. I uh, went to New York, and um, we played together for a couple hours, um, and uh, the playing just uh, for me felt like a really natural fit. <laughs> um, hopefully, it did for them as well. And then uh, we went out for lunch afterwards and um, got to spend some time um, yeah, just a little more casually. And um, I got to meet um, uh, Tamor's wife and and um, his now oldest daughter, uh, who was uh, just a baby at the time. Uh, but we got to spend kind of the day together. 
I recall that Zach was the last person to audition, and we had some great people before him, but he really clicked. And so I recall that the three members after his audition, we went into the men's room of this church <laughs> that we had rented, and we just high-fived each other, like, this is it, you know? And so we were, we were so excited. Um, I also remember that Zach had this really crisp shirt. It was really starched perfectly. <laughs> it's like, wow, that is a really good shirt. So he made a strong impression. Yeah. yeah. So in addition to practicing, you were ironing. <laughs> well, I'd imagine pra- that... Practicing, writing, spray starching, and ironing. Yeah. Right? It's top of the... I'd imagine that you'd want people who could click us beyond playing the horn, especially if you're going on tour or you're in a recording booth, you'd have to, you'd want to surround yourself with people you enjoy being around. Oh yeah. That's a big part of it. Um, and we, we really are good friends within the quartet, like we're dear friends. And that's been part of our, I think part of the reason we've had some success, um, we just enjoy each other's company. Um, on the musical side, Zach truly did elevate the, the group. I mean, he sat in with us and, we were like, uh-oh, we're, on, we're in for a ride. So when it came time for him to lead, he led, and he pulled us along. And when it came time to listen and follow, like he had a real sense of the role of a chamber musician and mm-hmm. when to, what role to be in, depending on where you are in the music. you know, Because it's really four people who are leaders and followers you know, and, and blending sound so that you can become a seamless part of a, of a overall sound with all the things that we look for he kind of clicked all the boxes so that's great is audience development something that prism thinks about and if so uh, how do you think about engaging new audiences yeah definitely audience development is uh is is crucial um, so cl- contemporary classical saxophone quartet is a fairly niche genre, as you can imagine. <laughs> and, and so, um, we, we try to branch out to new audiences as, as much as we can. And, um, I think what we're finding these days with, um, in, in-person live audiences is the market is so saturated that it's oftentimes the personal connections that we have as individuals that form the core of our audience. And then we're looking to expand beyond that. So, one strategy that we'll use is through our collaborations, um, whether it's with, with composers or, or other um, organizations that we partner with, we're hoping that um, when they come to our concert, that our fans become fans of, of their ensemble and their organization and vice versa. Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, um, obviously developing a, a following um, through, through digital means is, um, is ever more crucial. Yeah. I would add that, um, I think having a good publicist is, is also very important because the publicist is reaching the media outlets who are then reaching a much larger audience than we can reach through our, our own marketing efforts often. And so whenever possible, uh, if we have the resources, we will hire um, a publicist. We work with one in particular that we like, Aliba Gartner, who's a specialist in new music, uh, but also does jazz and world music. Um, Mm. and she represents our major, major projects, you know, and she, she has, um, I mean, when you're hiring a publicist, you're also hiring their relationships. And so her personal friendships with journalists and writers and connections to media outlets, I mean, we have a much better chance of having stories placed and then reaching a much wider audience. And I think the other part of it is, um, like targeted advertising through social media, 
So if we're playing a concert in Philadelphia, we can do an ad on Facebook and Instagram that says everyone within a five mile radius of Vernon Park who reads Downbeat Magazine, uh, we want to target them, you know, for, for a week. And, you know, that's much more effective than sending out like a thousand, you know, 10,000 postcards, you know, so you really target uh, your audience. Those people may not have ever heard of PRISM, but they may have heard of our guest artists who are major jazz artists. And so we're looking to, you know, to target audiences for our own benefit, but also using this idea of cross-pollinating audiences that Zach described through our marketing as well. All entrepreneurs and ventures face challenges. What's one challenge the ensemble has faced and how did it get resolved? You know, one challenge that might be applicable to students and younger audience members is just talking about the early days of the ensemble that Matt referenced earlier, um, making that transition from a student group to a professional ensemble is a huge challenge for, for any group. And so maybe Matt can talk about his experiences with that transition. But um, what oftentimes happens is you have a, a group that's successful. Maybe you're doing competitions and reaching a certain amount of success. And maybe you're um, starting to perform more and getting more touring engagements. And you get to the point where the ensemble is too busy for you to hold another full-time job, but it's not necessarily paying enough to you know, make a living and, and support yourself. And, and that's, that becomes a challenge for the individuals in the group and then for the organization to keep going. Um, so we might be able to get, get Matt's thoughts on that, um, on that transition. But I mean, you fast forward and, um, you know, now we, we talked through, we talked about a lot of the member changes and, um, several dec decades forward, Prism's been able to grow to the point where now Matt's serving as our full-time executive director with a, a part-time staff and, um, it's allowed us to hold full-time jobs and yeah. be active um, with the quartet. Um, but it's um, the resolution has been uh, over the course of several decades in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, the transition is usually something like you all become volunteer, you know, uh, administrators. So early on PRISM, everyone had a role. I was still the executive director, but I was volunteering. I wasn't being paid for it. And other people were doing other things. We had someone doing the books and treasure and so forth. And so it was important to kind of share the work equally. So everyone was felt like they were part of a team. And, but we got to a point where, um, that was no longer viable. We were all spread over the country. And my job at the time, I spent 11 years as the director of something called the Philadelphia music project which is a now defunct program of the Pew um, Center for Arts and Heritage. Um, and, but a couple of years before it became defunct, um, I decided to make the leap from that full-time position to being a full-time paid executive director. And then coalescing all of the responsibilities that the individual members had into my position and then bringing in some part-time staff to assist me. And that became much more efficient, you know, and um, we could really move much more rapidly. And so we kind of quadrupled the size of the organization. Even though we had more expenses, we were able to increase our activity, increase artist fees, increase programming, do much more ambitious programming. And that only happened in 2011. So it wasn't that long ago. 
Um, but it was a big leap for the organization, and, you know, to kind of go from an all volunteer run nonprofit to like having actual yep. infrastructure, you know, and I'm able to delegate. We have a director of advancement who does most of our grant writing. We work together, you know, um, to develop these proposals and people helping with um, booking and marketing and so forth. So part of a larger team. Uh, we've reached the part of the podcast where we ask all of our interviewees the same three questions. Um, so the first question is, what advice would you give to others wanting to become an entre- entrepreneur in your art form? I would say to be patient and be persistent and just kind of reflecting on what we're, what we were just talking about with um, the decades of work that... Um, prism has gone through to be, to be where it's at today it's easy to see an established ensemble and think that it's always been that way um but the fact is that there's a lot of work that went into it um and uh, being a entrepreneur means paying your dues over the course of a, a very long period of time and even after decades it's still it can it can be a grind um sure. there's there's never really a point where you feel like you made it <laughs> per se <laughs> yeah and I, I don't think we set out to be entrepreneurs. You know, that wasn't a word that we were using. We just wanted to play our music and find ways to share it and find platforms on which to share it, whether it be through concerts or recordings. So we just gained the skills necessary to, to do it. And I guess I'm a little uncomfortable with like someone saying, I want to be an entrepreneur. I'm, you know, I'm 19 years old, but maybe that's okay, you know. Because now there are programs that didn't exist back when I was in college. You know, you can study entrepreneurship and arts administration, but back then it was really learning by doing. You know, and and many of my own mentors and people I admire did that. They they didn't necessarily go through a training program, but they they got to where they were because they had passion about that work and just learned what was necessary. You know, so but I think um, my advice would would be to find mentors and models, people who can kind of take you under your, their wing and give you some information and knowledge that you might not glean from a textbook, but that are actually doing the work, you know, that are somehow in the field doing the work. Um, and then um, models, you know, we look to, early on, we look to other chamber groups like Kronos Quartet or Bang on a Can, um, really successful groups that had really interesting programming really diverse programming that reached out in lots of different ways. Um, and then, well, that's something that really appeals to us. And what would that mean yeah. with respect to our own artistic ambitions? Like we don't want to do what they do necessarily, but we want to find our own voice and find a way to share it in a way they've done. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's good advice. Actually a good idea for a podcast. <laughs> What can we do to ensure the arts are more accessible and reaching the widest possible audience? One thing that we've done is to focus on outreach and not always assume that our audience will audiences will come to us. But some of the most rewarding work that we've done has been through the various composition programs that we've developed over the years, including one called Composition for Kids that we developed, where we work with 
kids ranging from as young as kindergarten all the way up through high school. And uh, those programs have been mainly in Detroit and Philadelphia. Uh, but we also developed a community composition workshop um, in Philadelphia a few years back where we had participants write pieces for us to perform with our guest artists for a project called Color Theory. Um, and so that was with percussionist composers um, Susie Abara and Taishan Sori. So they actually um, teamed w- uh, with us to perform uh, the pieces of, of these community members. So um, we even had uh, one composer who's a singer who um, who wrote a piece and performed with us on, on a concert. So those activities have allowed us to um, bring in individuals um, to actually experience what we do as an ensemble firsthand and get a taste of it um, and feel like they're part of it, um, not just kind of viewing from, from the outside, um, even if they might identify as like an amateur um, musician, uh, composer, or, or performer. Yeah, I, I would just um, add that all too often we think of doing these comp- composition programs for you know, students in academia, but we found that there are so many people who are amateur composers and just love writing music. They may not even know how to notate music, but they're passionate about it, just as passionate as a, you know, someone studying composition. And so we found that our um, program called Unlocking Your Inner Composer tapped into, into that, into that passion. And we had something like uh, 40 or so composers in Philadelphia, most of whom were just ordinary folks who loved music and wanted to write for PRISM and our guest artists. And that was a, one of our most meaningful projects. Um, I think the other part of it is that uh, I think it's true that, you know, it's so important to be inclusive and to represent the audiences you want to reach by drawing on music that has meaning for them, you know. And so we try and do that. You know, our, our commissions and our programs really does um, is, is truly reaching across cultures. And, and you know, we're, we're trying to tap into the the really fascinating and varied history of the saxophone, which in and of itself is, you know, um, touches on so many aesthetics and ideas. Um, and so, but I also think that it's so important to respect the culture and tradition of these communities that we reach into to recognize there are rich traditions in those communities. I think, you know, it's often the case that um, arts organizations will think they're bringing you know, um, culture to a, to a community that may not have culture in the way they think of culture. But I think we have to think of the communities we reach into as being incredibly rich in their own, their own cultural, their own culture and interests and their love of music. And that we're just sharing something that we do, but also trying to learn from them, you know. So it's really like an exchange. Um, and that respect, I think, is really paramount to making these connections and and growing more inclusive audiences. Yeah. And what's the best artistic or entrepreneurial advice you've ever been given? I, I can kind of reflect on a couple pieces of advice that were given to me by teachers. Um, my teacher at the University of Michigan, uh, Donald Sinta, when I was a freshman, he said, you know, you don't go to bed without brushing your teeth. You don't go to bed without practicing your scales. <laughs> and um, so so that, for whatever reason, resonated with me. And it um, it set me up uh, to, to build really solid foundations on the instrument. But another teacher who told me, do one thing each day outside of practicing to 
uh, advance your career in some way or, or to work on, on your career. And, and so I think that's something that applies to every aspect or can apply to so many aspects of life. The idea of just taking baby steps towards whatever your goals might be um, and, and working towards them incrementally. It can be overwhelming, but um, just doing a little bit every day. I would agree. And, and just also circle back to the idea of mentors, you know, and, and connecting to folks who are doing the work that you may have interest in and seeing if they'll share knowledge that you might not learn in the classroom. I've had people come to me and say, you know, I'm really interested in what you're doing. Would you consider mentoring me? You know, and like, it's okay to do that, you know, and to find, to kind of seek out people who might take interest in your work and, and try and make those connections and see if there's a possibility of, of, um, knowledge sharing, you know? Um, cause I think, um, sometimes when we're students, we're, we're in an environment that's can be very regimented and it's all about, um, you know, learning our instrument and learning history and theory and all the things we need to learn. And, but some, but that can be disconnected from what may be happening in the real world in a way, you know? So connecting to people doing this sort of work in some way can be super helpful. And often that might mean, you know, it might mean not just working with your music teacher, but maybe there's someone in the institution who's doing marketing or public relations and they have so much to share, but they're locked away in the marketing department, you know, but they might have, you know, if they could share their press releases and marketing copy and whatever, then I know like um, when I've done work at the Curtis Institute, you know, I had a mentee who connected to the marketing and PR folks at Curtis and they, we kind of co-drafted a press release and the, the, the foundations, I mean, the um, Curtis sent it out and it garnered a concert review. So I think connecting to the administration is actually a, a great way to think about how you can um, leverage your time as a student, you know. Well, Matt, Zach, thank you so much for your time today. Yep, it's been very insightful. Great to be with you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Visit artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts, and this podcast. Mm-hmm.